Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. Just a quick bit of housekeeping before we kick off. As you know, no ads, no sponsors. The Tortoise Shack relies on you, dear listeners, to keep the show on the road. These mics do not go on unless we have some of you chipping in and giving us the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month. So while you're listening to the podcast, why not click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack and join us to get access to tons of exclusive content all in one consolidated podcast private RSS feed for you. And all of it is plea-free. You don't even have to listen to me beg. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful gift you can give to yourself? So why not try it for a month? There's no contract. There's no fit. There's no terms and conditions. Just try it for a month. See what you think. And if you don't like it, you can just cancel it. So please click that link. I won't delay any further. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and we are back talking to a listener favorite. It goes without any doubt. I haven't told him this, but without any doubt, when we have Professor Richard Murphy on, the listenership just spikes because he talks absolute sense when it comes to things about economics and how it's linked to society, accounting, finance, all of those areas. And particularly has a great aspect about how we use those tools to build a better system for that actually an economy that serves society rather rather than a society that is hooked up to building those figures that we all know don't actually benefit us all in the in, in the long run. Richard, it's great to see you. How are you keeping? I'm very well, thanks. Much better than I have been for some time. So I'm a happy chap. And I'm 65 next week. I oh, reach wow. what used to be the age of retirement. I'm not retiring. There's far too much to do. Oh no, you're as busy as ever. Um, we, you have lit, you're as productive as ever, I, I'd, I'd pass it. Uh, I reckon I'm working harder than I've probably ever done, and I don't mind that at all. I enjoy what I'm up to. Um, I just wish, I really seriously wish that we could build that society you've just talked about, one where we aren't the servants of finance, but where actually finance served us, which, yeah, we need finance. Let's not be daft about this. We need money. We need finance, but we don't need to be its slaves, and yet that's what we seem to be, and that's the goal. And yeah, so we'll look at look at that now in in, in the round. But if, I just want to come to first of all the ECB yesterday going to put up another half a half a percent on on interest rates. We see what's happened with Credit Suisse. We see um, you know the Swiss Central Bank. We see what's happened with the Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, Konstantin Gordiev was talking to me a few days ago. He thought the um, contagion was already in the system. It's all you know. It's already in the system. This idea that that they headed it off at the pass last weekend, you know that that's not that's not true because once it starts, uh, it's already going to pop its head up. And yet we're perse- persevering with, as you said, the only tool the central bankers have. You know, it's uh, it's it's we 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 could look at other monetary tools, but no, let's just hit them with the blunt hammer that we have. And you know, when when you all you have is a hammer, all you see are nails. Absolutely. Look, I think the contagion was in the system before Silicon Valley Bank decided to actually basically make a complete fundamental cock up of its cash flow management, which for a mm-hmm. bank is a pretty staggering achievement when that's really the only job they've got. You know, they borrow long, um, they borrow short and lend long. Sorry, let's they borrow short yeah. from depositors, they lend long. They got it completely wrong by misplacing those two, not understanding what they were actually up to. It turns out they aren't really a tech bank at all. They were just actually a savings and loan bank. Um, the vast majority of their activity was simply taking in deposits and putting them into the US Fed. 
with um, treasuries, which didn't suit as a basis for that. And so they got that seriously wrong. They were caught out by the Fed raising interest rates. And the contagion began when the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of England and everybody else around the world, but not the Bank of Japan, of course, um, began to put up interest rates artificially to try to kill inflation, which wasn't created by, in any shape or form, excess demand in the world, which is the only type of inflation which can be tackled by increasing interest rates. So the contagion actually started in our central banks and their group think. They thought they had to put up interest rates, and now we're seeing some of the cost. Well, look, we're seeing another aspect of the cost because we're already seeing the cost in terms of people who can't afford housing, people who can't afford to live, people who can't afford to pay their bills, you name it. These problems are commonplace. So we know that there's a real cost in society. Now there's a real cost in banking as well. Is it the cause of the problem at Credit Suisse? No, actually, that is different. That looks like an accounting cock-up, a good old-fashioned accounting cock-up. They admitted that they don't know that they've got their accounts right, and that's a pretty big thing to do when you're already a bank, which is tottering on the brink. So their failure might be something different. But just while we're talking accounting, um, and go back to Silicon Valley Bank, um, amusingly, I had a look at their accounts because that's the sort of sad geek that I am. Um, Somebody has to. And what did I notice? Their 2022 accounts are out and they're signed off by somebody called KPMG. Now, Let's 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 not knock KPMG because forty plus years ago they trained me to be a chartered accountant. I need to I need to preface all this by saying this show today is sponsored by KPMG, EY, and and PwC and all the all of the alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> but KPMG signed off their twenty twenty two accounts as true and fair without giving rise to any cause for concern on the twenty fourth of February twenty twenty three, and within yeah. ten days or so the bank has fallen over. Now, even in the record of incompetent bank um, audit reports from firms like KPMG, that's a pretty mega failure. They didn't notice that this bank was basically going bust. Was it bust? Well, actually, that's a good question. We don't know. Maybe in the long term it wasn't, but it couldn't have managed its cash flow. Well, they did They did say, yes, it couldn't manage its cash flow. And if the... If in the, in the if it was if it wound down through the processes of of doing of of paying it out over time most people they re- would have recovered their funds in over the period of the of the time available but that wasn't going to that was it was too it was too big to to be allowed to happen and not big enough to be a big bank it was in that yeah. awful and and they got away with the fact that because they kept their assets under as a 200 billion they didn't have to take into account the interest rate rises in their stress testing which just you know if you richard if you your your son walks in and looks for a mortgage they're stress testing the interest rates on on his repayment capacity I would sincerely hope so, but apparently not if you're a bank. I mean, that was a Donald Trump reform that small banks, I mean, a small bank being below $200 billion, you know. Yeah, I know. I mean, but this was one of the results. So we've got a bailout. And now we know the scale of that bailout in the US. And we know that last week, the US Fed, the central bank, the equivalent of the European Central Bank, which obviously has impact in Ireland and the Bank of England, where I'm sitting right now. Um, but the US Fed increased its lending to the US banking system by $300 billion. Now, let's be clear, quite a lot of that went to Silicon Valley, to the new holding company to guarantee its deposits. And some went to Signature Bank, 
which also failed last weekend, but with less notice. Um, so that's roughly half the money. Where did the other 150 billion go? We don't even know where the other 150 billion went. But somebody in the US banking system, and it isn't first signature, which also has been in trouble because that technically has been bowed out by other US mainstream banks, asked for 150 billion and got it. What did they have to offer in exchange for the $300 billion loan? US treasuries. So <laughs> the reality is that it's clear Silicon Valley Bank wasn't the only bank over investing in US treasuries, which are giving rise to stress because the interest rate has gone up. And on treasuries, when the interest rate goes up, the value of the bond goes down. And that is what has caught these people with their pants down. Um, US term pants here, I think we'll go, mm -hmm. no matter which. And the reality is that these banks have all been caught short on their cash flow very clearly. And this is, as far as I'm concerned, another round of quantitative easing. They wanted to do quantitative tightening. God, there's too many T's in that lot. Um, <laughs> I've had to learn to say quantitative um, and put all the T's in place. I think I did right. Now, quantitative easing is when the central bank buys back the bonds issued by the government that controls it. So in the US case, they buy US Treasury uh, gilts, uh, bonds. In the ECB case, they issue buy bonds issued by the various European governments. In the Bank of England's case, they buy US uh, UK gilts. They didn't buy the bonds for that 300 billion, I accept, in the last week. They just took them as, well, security against the loan. Which is near as damn it buying as you get, because if they default, the bonds become owned. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they took a lean. They, so come they on. They took a lean against them, Richard. You know, it's. You know, uh, let's yeah. not get down to too much detail here. Um, and I think it's important that this looks like QE, it quacks like QE, um, and therefore it probably is QE. But, but and it, it reversed half the quantitative tightening process so far. It's going to send a shockwave through the banking system. Will the Bank of England raise interest rates next week as a result of this? I sincerely hope not. In fact, I hope the Bank of England cuts interest rates by 1%. What's the Fed going to do? I don't know, because they claim that inflation is still running at 6% in the States, but they've got a banking system which is tottering on the brink. Yeah. Um, ECB has raised rates by half a percent in this week, which is just straight, plain straightforward bonkers. There's no way the Irish economy can afford that. There's no way any European economy can afford afford that. Um, I've got a report coming out with Danny Blanchflower, my old mate. Danny is, of course, actually David Blanchflower, but known as Danny after the Tottenham Hotspur footballer of the early 1960s. And I don't remember Danny Blanchflower, although I was watching football by the late 1960s. Um, but anyway, Danny was on the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee in 2008. Um, he was the real troublemaker on that committee at that time, saying, we're going to have a recession. We need to cut interest rates. We need to do quantitative easing. We need to actually bail the banks out. And all the others denied it until, of course, it had to happen. So Dan Danny has a, a track record on this. He and I have been working together for some time. We're putting out a report. We're saying, look, at this moment, the last thing, we need is quantitative tightening. That's the central banks selling bonds back into the market to remove liquidity mm -hmm. from the banks. I mean, the banks clearly need that liquidity desperately because they're falling over without it. So we must be right. There isn't a reason for quantitative tightening. We actually argue there is a reason, certainly in the UK economy, for more quantitative easing. 
just to actually inject money into the economy that it needs to keep functioning, because it's going to be a shortage of cash over the next few years, because our government is going to run big deficits and austerity at the same time. And that is a recipe for disaster. And we're arguing for a 1% cut in the Bank of England base rate next week. Will it happen? I don't think so. But because it isn't going to happen, this contagion from these bank fallouts is going to happen because there's simply not enough cash in the system because it's being taken out by high interest rates. It's being taken out by quantitative tightening, which is a deliberate process of the central bank withdrawing money from the commercial banks. And it's leaving there too much of money tightness in the system and is fueling the downturn in the economies that we're seeing, because there's no money for investment, there's no money for lending. And at the same time, we're all hard up as can be because we're all suffering less than inflation pay rises. The consequence is, look, recession written all over the place. And none of that's necessary. We just need some more cash in the system. And, you know, if only you could actually see it, listeners, but I'll, I'll, I'll show it to Tony because he can see me. I'll show Tony this, the, the, the technical tool we need to create new uh, money. I'm holding up my keyboard um, mm-hmm. at this very moment because you make money by tapping numbers into a keyboard. That's all you have to do. Mm-hmm. You just say, lend more money, which is just recording new debt. And that money should be created by the central banks and injected into the economy to keep us all going. I'm going to just because I can almost hear listeners say, OK, so we're talking about the, the fear of these banks teetering over and we've seen this this possibility. We've known, you know, even even like from an Irish perspective, take, take Silicon Valley Bank, for example, we find out that the, the Irish government has invested a couple of hundred million into it as well. You know, so it's, you know, it, we know these things. It's like, you know, the people said, oh, well, look, you know, their balance sheets are right. Do you think they've just been sitting on that money and not putting it into other other day, other sorts of um excuse me, financial instruments to 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 use the money? But on the flip side, all of the rate hikes that have happened, and it's been historically um they've broken all records for the space of the interest rate increases. These generally cycles used to take five years to go through what they've gone through currently. And here we are flying ahead, which people are saying now. In the in the US alone, I'm oh, just sorry. In the ECB, uh, the last uh, yesterday's interest rate hike is like a subsidy of 21 billion to the banks, and then that adds up to 129 billion <laughs> recurring every year. In in this, if we continue on this cycle, how do we square that circle with with with, with banks teetering and yet being subsidised by essentially? Essentially, you and I, people who are who are actually going to have to pay these higher prices for for rents and mortgages and car loans and finance and everything else that we're, we need to keep that economy going. Look, this is you're absolutely right. There's a massive bung going on to the banks at the moment. There's two ways that bung has worked. One is that actually QE put lots of cash on the balance sheets of banks. That was what it supposedly did. Now, they've not used it wisely. Um, and actually what SVB got wrong was so glaringly, obviously wrong. It's ridiculous. And I can say that from personal experience because I've already mentioned I'm 65 next week. And in theory, that's my retirement date, according to my private pension plans. And my university is saying, you're meant to be retiring. And I'm saying, I'm not. Leave me alone. Go away. But 
because I knew that I was reaching that age where some people think about retiring and I could take a pension and I provided for some pension for myself over the years, I looked at this two or three years ago and said, should I leave my money in government bonds, which is what you normally do if you're running up to retirement? And I said that would be the most stupid thing that I could actually invest my pension fund in at that moment because I expected interest rates to go up and therefore the value of bonds to go down. And so I did something much more sensible. I actually moved it all into cash. Now, you could say I've lost because of inflation, but I haven't lost a penny in terms of actual value because of the bonds falling. And in that sense, um, I did exactly what SVB did not do. But the consequence of moving it all into cash is rather like what's happened when QE happened. The government gave banks billions and billions, hundreds and even trillions of billions of euros or pounds or dollars. And they gave this money to them. I mean, let's be blunt about it. The banks didn't ask for it. They were given it. They got it because people sold bonds back to the central treasuries Hmm. and central banks. And the substitution was giving cash to the banks. Now, they've earned a stonking pile of cash on that. I haven't done the figure for the ECB, um, for the um, Bank of England in the UK economy. It's over 30 billion a year. We're paying on that alone. And then you look at the increase in the interest rate differential, i.e. what they can earn on cash and by charging customers and what they're actually paying out to customers, Hmm. most of whom are not claiming, bizarrely. Hmm the deposit account rates that are now on offer. And they're making another 2 or 3% on that. So in all, it's quite likely the banks are coining it by, well, in the UK alone, by 60 to 70 billion a year. Expand that for Europe. And as you say, 129 billion. That sounds a bit low to me. I reckon the estimate could mm. be higher. And who's that money coming from? A, it's coming from the government, all of whom are claiming, oh, we've got to have austerity because we've got to pay out more interest on our debt servicing costs. Um well, actually, you know that debt servicing cost is under your control because you set the interest rates. Yeah. Um, so actually, you don't have to pay that. You could actually tell your central banks, don't be stupid, don't pay this interest rate. And secondly, it's because they're not insisting that the banks pass on the benefit of this money to depositors. And even if they did pass the benefit on to depositors, of course, the depositors are wealthy and the people paying the interest are not, by and large. Let's put a very blunt, crude ratio on that. But by and large, people who've got money are called wealthy. And by and large, people who borrow money aren't wealthy. It's not a bad estimation of where some one of the principal divisions in society is. You know, that's a bit like a Marmite one. You know which side of that yeah. you're on. But, but um, when we talk about that subsidy, Richard, I just I want to come because it's really important that, that we kind of face it. Because one thing that did happen was that obviously the banks were given all of this money since the since the global financial crisis yeah. and they never actually got back into like take Ireland for example they know like we the people keep saying now here but if there's bank contagion in the banks at least we don't have a mortgage credit bubble this time you know because and you're going well actually what we have is less finance going out to, to SMEs and less finance yes. going out to businesses and even the little bit of finance that's going out to mortgages is actually subtracting from the pot that we need to grow the, the real economy not yeah. the not the multinational sector so people don't understand what the banks have actually done is reduced that pot so much that they've taken that extra money and put it into those other vehicles that you mentioned you know gilts and bonds and and, and the bloody SVB we know they did it so so they looked for these other alternatives and 
and it's like walking into it's like me taking 50 quid off you putting it all on black losing taking 50 quid off martin putting on on red it losing and then putting my own 50 quid down and winning and not giving you guys back your money right? <laughs> well i'm not going to go gambling with you then uh, i'm not even going to play poker with you look um let's look at this what is really happening the banks by and large, lent in the way they've always lent. Now, in some countries like Germany, that did mean they continued to support real SME activity. But if we look at the Anglo-Irish-American model of banking, which is the one which is relevant here, then that means that you lend to land and you lend to speculators, but you don't lend to create jobs, employment, investment, new technology, and everything else. 85% of all UK banking, and I don't think the ratio is very different in Ireland, is on land-backed invest uh, lending. Um, and a lot of the rest is on speculation um, of financial instruments or derivative products, and God knows what else. Tiny amount actually goes into SMEs and the real economy. What could have happened with QE? And again, this is one of the things that Danny and I thought about. And um, we just said, what could have we done um, with QE funds? Um, and we were trying to talk across international boundaries, because by and large, you know, this problem is universal. We could have done 30-year mortgages on a fixed low rate, not a variable rate, but a fixed low rate. So a household would never be caught out with the kinds of crisis that many houses are being caught out with now, with rising interest rates on loans, which they thought were affordable and aren't. We could have just said, have a fixed rate for the whole of this life of this mortgage. If you know you can afford it when you take it out, you'll always be able to afford it in the future. But we didn't do that. We could have repurchased student debt. Imagine what that would have done for economies, putting students out of the debt misery that they're in. Um, you know, it's a heinous crime that we have um, student debt in the way it's structured, which is just I spoke, to the, I spoke to the debt collective in the um, US a few times who are the people who were, but they've had some success in getting Joe Biden to make moves on, on student debt in the, in the US. Even the little bits that he's done, they reckon is worth nearly half a percent to the overall GDP of the US. Like it's, it's phenomenal. The impact that it's the lag it's creating on an economy by having this in the economy. That's it, crazy. So we have that sort of thing. What else could we do? Of course, we could actually create genuine investment banks for the economy. And, you know, there could be an Irish state investment bank. There could actually be a Connell investment bank. There could be, you know, a Kerry investment bank or whatever it might be. Yeah, choose your area, whatever you wish it to be. You know, the northwest to the southeast. I don't care which bit it is. Um, I don't know why I chose Kerry. But the point is, you could set up investment funds and they could issue bonds and the government could buy those bonds back instead of buying back treasuries. Mm. And the money would then stick in the local economy. It would be perfectly possible to do that. And yet that hasn't happened. And I just don't understand why not, because that would have actually translated QE into real jobs and money on the ground, which would have affected real people's lives. And, and, we, and, and, we're, and we're back at the beginning again, where we're saying we need that money to be financing what you would have written about for years and years and years in, in a Green New Deal to build sustainable jobs out of out into a, a world where we're all feeling, you know, everybody 
cost of living is coming down, living standards are rising, and you're not having you're not having to deal with those shocks because even something like a thirty year mortgage rate, by the way, would slowly start to wean people off the off the need for ever increasing house prices. Yes, precisely. Because actually you'd know the cost and you wouldn't need to have it keep going up to cover the increasing cost of living to do with that. And mm-hmm. you could fix that at a very low rate. You could fix it at treasury bond rate. And that would have, frankly, been if we'd done this and bought out loads and loads of mortgages instead of actually letting them flow. Suppose we bought out with QE vast quantities of the mortgage market and offered people long term interest rates of 1%. Uh, I think a lot of people would have grabbed that. Mm hmm. Taking a 30-year loan or even a 15-year loan, if that's what's left on your mortgage or whatever else, and said, okay, I'm good for that. I'll pay that. And that would have made people's lives infinitely better. Mm. But if we actually, as you say, did this job, you know, it would be possible to spin this out through the IDA, um, with whom I've had dealings since the 1980s. Um, I mean, I've had dealings since the 1980s. I worked with them to put a company into Limerick in 1985 or six. Um, <laughs> it's a long time ago. Um, but the point is, you know, they could have been the agency to actually create these investment banks and set this up and deliver the funding locally to make sure this could happen. And not necessarily relying on imported money, but actually Irish money to do this and Irish government money to do this rather than this being thrown away to subsidize the banks. But we didn't do that. And that's where QE's gone wrong. We could rebuild the system. I, I put up a chart on my blog this morning showing that actually the rise in U.S. Um, lending by the Fed last week was almost vertical, if you plot it on the chart, because 300 billion still has an impact, even though the total amount that outstanding is 8.6 trillion from the U.S. Fed. 300 billion is still a lot. And then there's only two other occasions when we've seen that almost vertical line appear on the chart with regard to U.S. Fed lending. One was 2008. No surprise there. And the other was 2020. Again, no surprise there. It's never otherwise happened like it did last week. So is this the start of a new QE crisis? Probably not the way that we had as a banking crisis in 2008, because banks are more stable than they were because of all (laughs) these bungs we've given them. And it's not because we haven't got a COVID crisis this time, but we have got a contagion crisis. And the contagion crisis has been created by these excess interest rates trying to tackle inflation in a way they won't. How do we know that they weren't needed to tackle inflation. Well, look at what Jeremy Hunt, the UK Chancellor, did this week. He announced ever so proudly the UK interest rate is going to fall from 10.1% to 2.9% this year. Yeah, well, I told you that. Yeah, I know. Oh, some time ago. I remember. I I remember when he made when he said, "Oh, and we're gonna." It was like uh, one of the predictions was, "And we'll reduce inflation by half." And you're going, "Yeah, uh, I could start. I could go to bed now and wake up in twelve months, and it would have happened. I didn't do yeah. anything. You know? Nothing at all was required to make this happen. Yeah, but yeah. he claimed some sort of miracle. But it, it it's not a miracle. It's happened, and it's going to fall to one percent or less. In fact, the risk is that because of their flipping bank po- favorable policy this policy of quantitative tightening, this policy of austerity. And this is exactly the same in the ECB. We could go to negative interest rates, which are really bad for growth and in keeping economies stable because people don't invest when you have negative interest rates because it's going to be cheaper next year. So why pay for it now? So it's really bad news what they're doing all around. 
All I'm saying is this vertical line on the chart by the Fed last week is the absolute sign that they need to wake up. They need to look long and hard at what they've done and say, oops, we've got it wrong. Let's change tack now for the sake of the banks, for the sake of inflation, for the sake of investment, for the sake of ordinary people. Most of all, we need to put the banks back in their box safe and sound. We need to do some more QE, not quantitative tightening, and QE should be invested for the benefit of people in their economies where they are. That's my belief. That's where we should be. How will that happen? I don't know, but I wish it would. You're uh, you're bringing out a piece with with Danny. You said next week on that, and I'd recommend listeners, of course, when that comes out, to, to jump on it and, and have a read. But I will ask a question then: uh, the UK's budget. <laughs> I can't keep the, the laugh out of my out of my out of my voice at the moment because some of the 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 uh, the talks, like you know, the, it's it's become. Everything I every time I, I try to to take a serious uh, view of of UK politics at the moment, does the obsession with culture war issues is just purely on the basis to almost it's it's distraction theatre now, it's it's yeah. really is distraction theatre. I mean the Gary Lineker debacle, and of course Gary Lineker was correct to stand his ground. Of course Gary Lineker should not have been put off the air, but it still took away from you know uh, the UK literally. <laughs> bringing forward a bill called the illegal migration um, bill where everybody thinks what it means is we know it's illegal as we're trying to set it up. As I know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I tweeted that. Um, yeah. I, I was quite amused to discover actually in the day, uh, in the 24 hours before Gary Lineker became the object of hate, according to the right wing, um, yeah. the only person he had retweeted was me. So good for Gary. Um, Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know Gary. No, no, but but I will I will say oh, it's spoken. I mean, gotta... I, but I don't really know it. But look, he did the right thing. He said he it in the right way. He was absolutely bang on. I was less subtle. I said that this is fascism. He didn't. Um, and it is fascism, let's be blunt. Um, mm-hmm. this is actually a politics of hate. Um, and I do love um <laughs> Michael Higgins' message today, God, talk about a subtweet. Um, mm. Yeah, his message to Suella Bradman about St. Patrick was brilliant. I um, loved it. I mean, yeah. amazing. We 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 find that our uh, our our president, if we could if we could keep him for another term, we would. You know, uh, he he often is he 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 often often has our own government pulling their hair out when he talks about our housing crisis as well. Yeah. So 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 isn't it wonderful when you have a, a statesman like that? But back to the UK's own economy and the struggles that are going to see. You're saying they want to talk about. You know, uh, the worst of both worlds. Let's have um, let's let's have austerity and let's have, uh, you know, let's have reducing our, our, our taxes as well. You know, this is what are they doing, Richard? Uh, like, is it is, are they- this, was, this was a budget that did the most amazingly stupid things. And I was live tweeting it and then broadcasting on it on Wednesday. Um, the bigger single um, news broadcast on it is actually on Radio 2 in the UK straight after the Chancellor sits down. And I've done that broadcast for the last 12 years or something now. Um, it's also a bit scary because you have none of the documentation. You just have to get up and say, Ooh, this is what I think, having not read a word, just relying on what he said. And I said a number of things. One was there's a big bung to big companies in here with regard to tax. There was, there is none for small companies. There's a big bung for big companies. What a surprise. Upward movement in wealth towards large companies away from the small business sector. There's a big bung to the wealthy. 
We spend £60 billion a year in the UK subsidising pension contributions. The size of the UK defence budget, by which we measure our virility in some international arenas, is spent on subsidising pensions. Another bung to the city. And what did we do? We gave a bigger share of that bung to the very wealthiest, the 1% who can now put unlimited amounts of money into their pension pots and get tax relief on it. And the apparent cost of each new job that will be created as a result is £70,000 a year. These are the most expensive job creation programs ever invented. Let's just put that in context. People with wealth get more pension subsidy per week in the UK than people who are on universal credit because they need it to make ends meet and feed their kids. It's that bad now. We have welfare for the wealthy. We don't have it for the people who need it in the UK. And we had austerity. And we're going to see that getting worse. And the best example of that is the absurd pay offer that has been made to NHS staff in the UK this week, which I reckon will lock in a 6.4% perpetual cut in their pay. And they're recommending it. The unions are recommending it as the best deal they can get. Why is this deal so bad? Because they're going to get most of their pay rise for 2022 in terms of a one-off payment. They seem to think that because inflation is falling, prices are going to fall. No, prices are going to stay 10% plus inflated. They're not going down. They're just not going to go up anymore. But they're accepting a pay deal, which won't reflect that fact in the future. And therefore, they're actually going to cut the value of pay to real NHS staff. The government's going to be making, I reckon, $12 a year as a result in terms of savings. But that's money taken out of the economy. It's real spending power. I mean, and we've we've already made that point. So that 1% who are getting the tax breaks, they're less likely to need to spend. They don't need. How many Teslas do they need? How many Maseratis do they need? Well, this is, you're right. Absolutely. Whereas you've given it to the nurse, the nurse puts it back into your economy. You know, (laughs) literally that somebody who's making 30,000 quid a year or thereabouts in the UK and, you know, whatever the equivalent 35,000 euros in Ireland is going to be spending almost every penny they earn because they've got a choice. The rent, the mortgage, the food, the kids and everything else demand it. And every now and again, you want a pint too. Mm. And that's exactly the same in the UK. But the person who's earning... How much do you have to earn to be able to put 60,000 a year into your pension? Let's be Mm. clear. That person is going to be earning over a quarter of a million a year at least. They are saving and savings are dead money. They don't result in new employment precisely because the banks don't invest in new employment. They don't lend for new employment. So this is money that's literally just taken out of the economy and lost to productive activity. And therefore, it's the worst possible way to stimulate the economy. But we're still trying to penalise workers on average and lower pay. And we're giving bungs to those on higher pay and saying, this is how we're going to create growth. You couldn't make up anything more stupid if you tried. It's economically illiterate. And yet it's what the UK Treasury and let's be blunt, the treasuries of most countries around the world think. It's- let's 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 look at the Irish miracle um, as as we do all the time, uh, the Irish miracle of and, and it was funny. I don't know if you heard, but we spoke with Joe Pina, who's the vice deputy leader of the, part, the Socialist Party who were in government in Portugal. And, and it was interesting because Portugal is second to Ireland in economic growth. Yeah. Yet under every demographic last year, they reduced inequality. So yeah. they're, they're, they only have half our rate of, of growth. Yet Ireland officially said, if you strip out our, our multinational GDP for, from our figures, we're in recession and actually in inequality increased. So which would you prefer? Slightly more, slightly less growth and a slightly better um 
balanced society or or the Irish miracle and more people left behind and the and the Tory government we know which one they want you know it's uh, it's very clear but let's but in the in sense of the Irish miracle the headline figure looks so good that it's hard to scratch beneath the surface and say, do you know that more people are working poor than they than they were? You know, when when we, it just makes no sense. You know, well, this is the nonsense of GDP figures because GDP figures include corporate profits, and in fact, actually, uh, one of the first things I did when I looked at the budget this week, I and mean, it's only two days ago, it's not even two days ago yet, um, but when the figures came out, I looked at how is he forecasting GDP growth because I wasn't expecting GDP growth. Where is it from? Do you know where it's from? It's almost entirely from increases in investment income and corporate profits. It's hardly anything to do with wages. Mm. So GDP growth in the UK is entirely skewed yet again to the wealthy. In Ireland, around a quarter of GDP, gross domestic product, so-called national income, is corporate profits. Now, that's nonsense because we know they come into Ireland and they go out of Ireland. We know that. We've only got to look at the accounts of people like Microsoft in Ireland to see that's the case. So that is a meaningless number in the Irish context. Ireland, the meaningful number is GNI, gross national Mm -hmm. income, which takes that number out of account. If you compared Irish GNI with Portuguese GDP, you'd have a fair comparison because Portugal doesn't flow corporate profits through it at all. And actually, what we look at in Portugal, and I've looked at Portugal, and I've met some of the socialists in Portugal, and I greatly admire what they've done, because they stood up to austerity, they stood up to Europe and said, we're going to do a policy which is going to be about increasing the flows of money to those who can spend it best, because that's how we'll create growth. And they've succeeded. They've done exactly what we're talking about. They gave money to the people who would spend. And as a consequence, they have got real growth and real benefit and a reduction in inequality. And if you want any single measure which says, have we got a healthier, better, wealthier society, then looking at inequality is the issue. And you don't look at the thing called the Gini coefficient, because that is not very um, helpful. It doesn't look at the extremes, because the extremes are where the problems are. So you have to look at modified measures. Um, There's a thing called the Palmer Index, which is actually better. Um, And then you look at where is the real crisis in society? And we had... All the journalists in the UK saying, oh, technically, we might not be in the re- in recession this year in the UK, uh, and therefore we can all celebrate. Look, that's utterly meaningless if the only reason why we're not in recession is because energy companies are making a fortune in profits at cost to pe- real people who can't afford to heat their houses, put food on their children's plates and or shoes on their feet to go to school. Yeah, that is just meaningless because real people one quarter of households in the UK are struggling to pay a major bill, whether it's the rent, the mortgage, the electricity, the gas, the water, or whatever. You know, these things are not being paid. And yet we can say, oh, we're not in recession. Damn it. For those 7 million households in the UK, we are very much in recession. We're in crisis. But I... uh... I, I accept that. And we, we the Ireland, we're saying, well, we have a technical recession. There's no such thing as a technical recession. OK, <laughs> if if the real if people are, are are worse off than they were, that's a recession in, in the real world. That's okay? a real recession. Yeah. 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 Forget that's, that's, the rest. It's yeah. just a real recession. I, I, I want to ask, though, on the, on the come back to the key point here is yeah. distribution matters for mm. those who are into their bit of philosophy and everything else. You know, what we've got here is that economists are utilitarians. And that's the school of philosophy created by a chap called Jeremy Bentham, who said that the overall aim is to increase the net utility of society. What he forgot was that actually 
He said, if you increase the wealth of one person, that will increase the overall wealth of society, even if the wealth of everybody else goes down just a little bit, but overall less than the increase in the wealth of the one person. Mm. There's a technical answer to that. That's crap. That's a completely rubbish approximation to the truth. That's what crap stands for. Mm -hmm. Um, Completely rubbish approximation. And because it's crap because that one as we've already said that one wealthy person will not spend their money but everybody else is now in deeper poverty and yet economists believe that jeremy bentham was right economists are wrong to believe in jeremy bentham and they venerate him so much that at university college london he's still literally embalmed and sits in his case in a corridor even though he's been dead for over 200 years they still have his body there okay and they take it into the <laughs> meetings of the senate of university college london as if he's present he's recorded at present at this meeting still you know, this, is I, it's, this is the first economic necrocracy or necrocracy i've ever yeah, heard of but, you know? but because they still believe that jeremy bentham might have been right no he isn't distribution matters and this Can we we go back to UK on on distribution and look very quickly before we wrap on on housing? Because it was I, I touched at it again. You're we we we're saying, oh, you know, we've turned our tarnished to a very unfortunately now he's got he's made it created a hostage for fortune for himself by saying we've turned a corner on housing and we know com- commencements have gone off a cliff. Okay. <laughs> so he's he's created a real hostage for fortune. That, that but but in the UK, uh, I talked spoke to Toby Lloyd recently, and I said, you know, he said about the ambitious plan Theresa May had these numbers, and I said, Well, did you ever hit any of them? Oh no, we never came anywhere near any of them um and i'm laughing one of their building plans they actually published and they never built a single house under the program that they announced not one but was it i think it was you who tweeted something about tesco having concerns about you know uh, the 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 the, the struggle that they're having you know you know when you're because there was this phrase that was came out came popularized from david cameron towards recently of tesco towns Yes. Uh, yeah, and now we and we see even uh, then we see Tesco talking about the concerns about how things are going. It's it's absolutely horrendous when you think, you know, first of all, taking away the culture issues that 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 deflect from it. The housing situation in the UK is really dire, and it's not getting any better. It was very interesting to watch the chairman on Tesco's of Tesco's on Question Time on the BBC last night. Now, I don't normally recommend watching Question Time because it's not an edifying experience until they let me on, and they never have yet. Um, (laughs) They did actually almost get me on once. Um, But the chairman of Tesco was on there last night, and he was saying two things. One was the UK needs a national plan, a five-year plan, and I thought I never expected the chairman of Tesco's to be a a disciple of Joe Stalin in having five-year plans. Um, That's a really interesting development that he believes in five-year planning. And secondly, he was talking about the fact that actually what we need is a positive plan for redistribution, in effect, and he believes that Labour would deliver it more than the Tories. Personally, I'm not really very convinced by the Labour Party's policies either, but he said at least it will help out Tesco's more. He clearly had a political agenda in saying that. And what's his political agenda? He wants money in the pockets of people who can spend at Tesco and the Tories aren't delivering that. And so we have the chairman of Tesco saying vote Labour effect. But, but isn't that, isn't that, I suppose that's a brilliant summation of this. I mean, like I often make the joke, nothing worse than a Marxist that hasn't got any five-year plans for the weekend. But nonetheless, when you look <laughs> at, when you look at, like, the, the, as you said, the chairman of Tesco understands that it's the money needs to be in the pockets of of people who like to shop in Tesco. 
Yeah. Not in not in the not in the ones that people say, I am um, send someone, send the au pair to uh, Marks and Spencer's or whatever. Right, the, right, or whatever else yeah, yeah. Say, that's yeah. not that's not going to work, you know. So more expensive than Tesco and they'll go and buy that. Yeah, uh, but uh, but so so when we when we look at it overall, the worst part of it, as I see, is now you're going to have people who pay more of their money towards rents and and uh, and mortgages and being able to afford less of the things that we need to spend money on, which is food, light and heat. It's food, it's- light and heat. And also, let's be clear about this. And this is where the tipping point is going to be going out because actually we need to go out because we're social beings, you know. We actually do want to go and see our friends and have our family celebrations and God knows what else. Uh, there is no big party here next week for me being 65. I've refused it and I'll kill them if they stage one. <laughs> but we will go out a little bit. I, 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 I'm going to tell the lads they're all behind you now for the surprise. I'll, I'll tell them just to stop. <laughs> but we need to go out, whether it's yeah. to buy a coffee or have a beer or go to the cinema and we need to buy some clothes to celebrate, etc. And those things are where the economy is going to fall over. And I still think that's going to happen because mm-hmm. what we're setting up is an economy where people can't afford to go out. And that's where young people work. And therefore, there's going to be fewer jobs for young people because these parts of the economy are heavily young person orientated. Then new vibrant growth parts of the economy. And that's not going to happen. And they're going to see corporate failures in that sector. And that's really scary. And I don't think we've really seen how bad it's going to be yet because the full impact in the long term of these bad pay rises now and the crippling consequence of that over time is not yet being seen. But we're heading for really tough years unless we get a major change of plan and we put money in the pocket of people who are going to spend. I going to wrap up one little thing. I forgot to give you credit for something from that you said to us. I think it was around September last year where you, you flagged the idea that the they watch out for car finance. You'll see wobbles in car finance be, yep. be, before you'll see it in certain aspects. I saw um, the Green Party are part of the government here as a, as, a, as a small player. But, you know, one of their big things is this active travel idea. And I saw they, 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 they looked at something and I think they misdiagnosed it. And they said the number of new cars, because we obviously have this obsession of buying the new car in January to, yeah. with, the new, with the new license plate. Yep. Yeah. So the obsession there, they said, oh, my God, January, uh, January, February, there's been a there's been nearly nearly a 20 percent decrease in new car purchases in, in relative to last year. And they said, this is because we're putting people on bikes and on electric scooters and all of the rest. And I went, no, you, you've totally misdiagnosed this. And Richard, I, here we go. I'm going to say it. You called it. You bloody well called it. That's And that's, that's why a- people can't afford the new finance. And that's running through because mm-hmm. most cars are bought on finance and people can't afford that finance. And it's not going out there. Uh, actually, sensible people, people are realizing it's cheaper to refinance the old car. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, keep the car going. Um, there's a bloody old Volvo sitting, sorry for swearing, sitting outside okay. um, the window uh, to my right hand side as I'm talking to your attorney because it works and that's what matters. But the point here is, yeah, that's where we begin to see the impact. People can't afford these things which keep the economy going. And you can say it's good news. It's green. There are new cars. And that's what they're saying. The bad news is there's also not jobs. And we haven't planned for what to replace those jobs in the car industry with. Therefore, it is bad news because there's no plan. So the chairman of Tesco is right. We need a national plan. And in this sense, I'll applaud him because he's saying something which is sensible. We need to actually have politicians who say it's our job to have a plan. 
Mm. And we have so few politicians with the brain power to actually think up a plan, let alone have the ability to deliver it. And that's where our real crisis is. And that contagion is another one that's spread around the world. Politicians who don't think it's their job to plan for their economies. Listen, Richard, I'm going to leave it there. I really enjoyed that. And I hope listeners got a lot out of it. I'm reminded of one phrase we all, that I remember from remember from being a kid they used to say what's the difference between Finna Fall and Finna Gale and they'd say um, you know they were both the same policy wise they were both the same and how they 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 ran the country more or less there wasn't much between them in, in terms of that but Finna Fall had the common sense to know that they, need, they needed to leave you the price for a pint on a Friday evening <laughs> <laughs> that's about it I'll be killed for saying something in favour of Finna Fall. I don't normally folks talk to you all very very soon take care bye bye Tony and Martin Martin and Tony speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.